Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this podcast we chat with John Adair on his time flying the Sea King with the RAF and Royal Navy. As well as the Sea King, John also chats about flying the Gazelle, the Wessex, and his time in Desert Storm. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also give a straight donation by visiting us at aircrewinterview.tv. Thank you and enjoy. So John, when did you first become interested in aviation? I became interested as a very small boy. Uh, My father was in the Royal Air Force and National Service. Uh, He couldn't fly because he was colourblind. Uh, but he was always interested in flying and he had lots of books in the house and we used to get taken to RAF Lucas to the air show there uh, and uh, the, we went there uh, every year and there was always aircraft flying around and it just fascinated me. So from a young age I was always keen uh, to fly uh, and uh, in fact bizarrely I bumped into a chap from school who I hadn't seen since I was about 10 and when I said what I did uh, he said, well, but you're always interested in aviation. And, I, and even that age, I thought, well, crikey, maybe I was. But yes, yeah, so it's from a very young age, so, uh, so I've been very fortunate to be able to do it. Yeah. So what year did you join the RAF, and could you tell us um, some of the aircraft you trained on? Yes, I, I joined the Royal Air Force in 1984. Uh, I was, uh, managed to get my special flying award through uh, the cadets, which I wasn't a member of, uh, but uh, there was a few scholarships who were given out. Uh, and when I was at school, I managed to get my PPL. Uh, and uh, flew the Cessna 152 up at Dundee uh, in uh, Easter holidays, uh, and I was there for what, about three weeks and got my PPL, and then joined the Air Force when I was 19, as I said, in 1984. Went to RF Cranwell, uh, and from there went to RF Church Fenton on the Jet Provost Mark III JP, uh, which was great fun. Uh, a marvellous course, hard work. You had to work hard and play hard. Uh, and the, the JP was quite hard work to fly. Um, I think the phrase was a uh, constant noise, variable thrust, uh, or variable thrust, constant noise, one or the other. But it, whichever way it was, it was, it was quite hard to, to fly. Um, and I think that was part of the plan, um, was that, that it did kind of whittle people down uh, through the course. Um, and uh, the Church Fenton was brilliant. It was a year's course uh, from learning how to fly it to going solo. Uh, and I went solo at RAF Elvington which uh, was a great place to go solo because it has a massive runway. So you could all see it when you're downwind, which is quite nice. Uh, and the weather was lovely. It was in the summer. Uh, and uh, we would sit there with our flight reference cars, learning the checks uh, and watching the, and hearing the skylarks above us as we then whiz around a little jet provosts. Uh, and uh, so there was 10 of us on the course. And so you learned how to fly the, to fly the aircraft around circuits and then doing aerobatics and then instrument flying um, and then low-level, medium-level flying. Uh, and I did 100 hours on the Jet Provost. And halfway through, we, were, uh, we had to put down what you wanted to fly uh, when you got to, uh, out of the training system. And you were either, you volunteered for, or you asked for uh, either Group 1, Group 2, or Group 3. So that was fast jets, multi-engines, or helicopters. Uh, I had always wanted to fly helicopters, but I kept that quiet um, because the Air Force really wanted fast jet chaps, and, and rightly so. But there was other aircraft that needed seats and needed pilots to fly them. Um, and so I've put down Group 3, which is helicopters. And the squadron boss wasn't too impressed and invited me in for an interview to say, what, what, are, you, what are you wanting to fly helicopters for? And I, said, and I said, it's not the easy option, you know. I said, no, no, it's not so, absolutely. Um, and uh, fortunately for me, there were slots uh, and, uh, and myself and this other chap 
document to R.F. Shobri. It was about a year and a half course at uh, Shobri. Uh, and we were, again, we learned how to uh, fly the aircraft around the circuit, went into the hover. And the first time you went into the hover, it was quite interesting because the, I remember the instructor would, you'd get into the hover and the instructor would give you, say, one, give you the cyclic uh, to uh, keep the aircraft in one, one space. And so you'd look forward and right and forward and right. And once you got that, you would then take that off you and then you would give you the collective, uh, which keeps you go up and down. And so you'd let you do that so you could get the height of the aircraft uh, above the ground just right, and then he'd give you the rudder pedals so you could move around left and right. And, and then he would give you all three controls, and then off you went, all over the airfield, <laughs> trying to hover this thing. And eventually it clicked, like, like, like everything, eventually it does click. Um, and, uh, and I think the first solo in a helicopter was probably more nerve-wracking than uh, first solos in the, uh, the Cessna or the Jet Provost, just because it was just so different. Um, and uh, so we learned how to, uh, to, to operate the helicopter from sloping ground to confined areas where you're dropping into areas in a wood and, uh, in, in, to, to sneak your way in there amongst all the trees um, and, uh, and then low-level flying, which in a helicopter is fairly low, uh, and down to normally 100 feet we're authorised to, to whiz around at. And the gazelle was great because it could go up to 160-odd knots um, and so it could whiz along. And so at 100 feet it was, really, it was great fun. Um, and as the course progressed, you then did some formation flying, uh, close formation and tactical formation. Uh, after the gazelle, you then streamed, you chose what you wanted to fly. Uh, and I was quite keen to uh, fly the Wessex in Northern Ireland, but there were no slots. So I then did an another course uh, on the gazelle, which was an advanced low flying tactical flying course. Uh, and we went off in formation um, and you had about an hour or two hours to plan this uh, hour or two hour sortie for this real time on target um, pickup of theoretical troops. And you had to be there plus or minus 30 seconds. So it was quite hard work and you had to brief this and go off information. Uh, but it was great fun, very satisfying. By the end of uh, this month's course, uh, it, it was called clicking into place, so, which was lovely. Um, but uh, the Puma that I was going to fly, they needed more people in Northern Ireland on 72 Squadron. And uh, so I then went to 72 as, as I'd wanted to do in the first place. So that was in 1986, I went to Northern Ireland. Um, and you went out as a fresh young thing. I was uh, 21 when I went out to 72 Squadron. Uh, and I was the second youngest uh, on the squadron with this other chap uh, called John Tapper, who's a lo lovely fellow. And he and I were the young puppies on the squadron. Uh, and uh, we were flying officers. Uh, so we were uh, one of the lowest ranks out there. But uh, we were tasked to operate around the province uh, and uh, from supporting the Royal uh, Ossican Sadbury and the British forces uh, who were various bases all over uh, the province. So would you fly on a regular basis out in Northern Ireland? Yes. Um, you effectively, you worked three or four days on um, and maybe had a day off and then another three or four days on and then you had a numbers of day off, maybe three or four. Um, and uh, when your usual routine was going to the squadron, um, at, say eight o'clock or so for uh, morning briefing, uh, and then you would you would know your tasking that day because you'd, you'd either do tasking around RAF Aldergrove where we were based, um, or you'd be have a set task down in uh, South Amar, down at Bestbrook, which is an old mill, uh, and you could get uh, there were two Wessex down there each day and a Lynx. 
uh, and a gazelle. Uh, and so when you, got, when you got down to South Amar, you were given this tasking sheet. I would have times and pick-up points and numbers of uh, people that you had to pick up and drop off. And so your day would run, uh, run like that. And you could be flying for, I think one day I did about almost 10 hours flying. Um, and if it was really busy, you do some night flying, but it just depended on the situation. And you're then on standby at night um, in, in the officer's mess, effectively, down there. Uh, but it was a used mill, so with the army had made the best of it, and it was fairly comfortable. But you were fairly safe in there, although it did get mortared a number of times, not when I was there. Um, but uh, it, there was a few marks potholed <laughs> around the place. Um, but oh, you went to a place called Dungannon, which is halfway just over the Loch Ney, uh, or Omar, um, or across to Enniskillen. And they all had kind of codes and numbers uh, on them. And uh, you would, again, operate. You'd just be given these tasks by the army. Uh, or down in South Amar, you would fly to the various observation posts, uh, one called Fork Hill um, and another one uh, of the RUC places, uh, Royal Arts of Consabry places, and one called uh, Cross Glen, uh, which was an interesting one, which was the, uh, quite a hotbed of um, the IRA and uh, used to fly into this uh, small camp, army um, RUC camp, um, and it had only had enough room just for the Wessex to squeeze in. So it was quite a tight squeeze, but again, you had to go in there quickly because you didn't want to hang about. Um, in fact, there is a, a story of a Wessex. Which, before they built uh, the, the fence around the RUC area there, they landed in the field just outside, um, and the IRA were waiting, and they fired an RPG-7 at the Wessex, and, and the door was open, fortunately, the crewman, and he saw this missile coming towards him, and he fell on the floor and because they'd fired the RPG so close it went straight through the door out the other side of the Wessex uh, and then went skidding along <laughs> along the grass luckily it didn't go off so the boys went we're out of here ka-ching and disappeared not when I was here it was before yeah. I, I pitched up um, but uh, so yes the usual day was um, you'd be tasked by the army and uh, you worked three or four days in a row and then you managed to get home quite a lot uh, or you just stayed you know, in the officer's mess if you were single or if you were married, you're in the, um, in the married quarters. And you're all behind the wire. Um, so it's very sociable, I must say, in the officer's mess. It was, uh, there was a lot going on, which is great. <laughs> so overall, did you enjoy your time on the Wessex? Yes, yes. Uh, it was, um, I think, most people's first tour in the military, they have a soft spot for that aircraft because you're, you're learning your trade. You're learning, um, you've been taught to fly, and now you're actually putting all those skills uh, to good use. So uh, it, it was great fun, I must admit. And it's two years. And in the two years, I just almost managed 1,000 hours, um, which was the aim. Everyone wanted to get 1,000 hours. And I was just underneath that. Um, but uh, it, was, um, it, was, it was great fun. And uh, the squadron, 72 squadron, was, was marvellous because we were all lived together. One of the few th- times uh, where you all lived at, w- at one place, um, and uh, all, the, all the chaps were you know, all very sociable, I must say. Um, so it was, uh, it, it was great fun, I must say. I would do, I would do it again if I could. My favourite tour. Um, and uh, it, the, the Wessex was very forgiving. You could get away with quite a lot. It had a lot of power, uh, which is quite nice. So, John, in 1988, you were offered an exchange posting. Could you tell us about this? Yes. um, I still wanted to go Pumas, uh, and uh, so that was my next choice. Uh, And then I was offered this naval exchange tour to 846 Squadron down at Yeovilton, flying the Mark IV Seeking, and they were called the the Junglies. 
uh, they're called the junglies because they were uh, they operated in Borneo uh, in the Malayan crisis and uh, they obviously got very good at it and so they, they were called the junglies. Now I hadn't really heard of this tour uh, apart from there was one uh, chap in the squadron uh, who was a Navy exchange guy, he was a junglie so he was telling me all about uh, what the, the, the seeking, uh, Mark IV seeking did uh, and another chap had done it and the squadron boss had also done this uh, jungly tour uh, and I thought well that, that could be quite good and then the sweetener was uh, I was a flying officer at the time and uh, so they said well but to go to the, the Navy you've got to be a flight lieutenant I went all right then I'll go <laughs> so promotion being a Scotsman happy with that so uh, went down to Yeovilton uh, and uh, where the squadron uh, they were based there was two squadrons 845 squadron and 846 uh, and went there initially and then off down to Carose to do the ground school uh, and there was a simulator there for the seeking also to do a simulator work then up to Yeovilton onto 707 squadron and learned to fly the Mark IV seeking which was bigger than the Wessex or is bigger than the Wessex uh, we could in the Wessex you could take 12 troops uh, with all their kit in the Mark IV seeking you could take 28 the Mark IV seeking doesn't have a radar uh, or all that kit so in the back it's just like just like a Wessex really so but you can get lots of, uh, of, of people in there and all their stuff uh, and it had a longer range you could you could fly for up to six hours if you filled the tanks uh, and uh, it had more uh, instruments the Wessex only only had an ADF uh, and it also had uh, DECA so pretty basic uh, navigation uh, whereas uh, the Mark IV Seeking it was fully airways equipped actually we could have VOR we had RLS uh, we had uh, tactical air navigation system TANS, which uh, did use uh, a combination of DECA uh, and uh, maybe VOR. I'm not quite sure on that one. I'm sure somebody will pick me up on that. Um, and uh, so you had a lot of kit. Uh, and the 846 Squadron uh, and 845 were fairly well advanced with their night vision goggle work. So we did a lot of night vision work uh, flying around low level. Uh, and our primary role... Uh, with the junglies was to support the Royal Marines uh, wherever they went in the world uh, and each winter we would go up to northern Norway uh, you'd either fly up to Bardafoss in the back of Hercules which we did uh, and the squadron was already there or some of the aircraft were there because there was a permanent uh, winter base effectively uh, for the junglies and you learnt uh, Arctic warfare flying uh, and you did an Arctic uh, survival course uh, which was obviously cold, uh, but great fun. And, and the Royal Marines ta- taught you how to, uh, to ski, to do cross-country skiing. Because uh, every time you went flying, you always carried a full Bergen full of kit uh, and your skis, you know, these wooden, big, long wooden skis, uh, as they were called, pusser's planks, um, which are very long things. Uh, and uh, I was rubbish at it. But uh, I, I, I thought flying was better than skiing. Um, and uh, we operated day and night, uh, supporting the Marines and lifting their big 105 guns uh, around the ranges uh, and uh, landing in, in, in snow up in the glaciers and all over the place. Uh, and landing in snow was a, a challenge because you would get this thing, as you came into the hover, obviously all the snow would uh, billow up around you and you'd have the thing called whiteout. So you had to do a, a type of approach and landing called a zero-zero landing. So you'd effectively come in low level uh, and then the last couple of hundred feet uh, or 100 feet or so, you would start to slow down and you'd aim to land at zero height and zero speed, called a zero-zero. And the theory behind that was that you kept the snow cloud behind the cockpit as long as possible so that you could still have visual references. 
Um, and uh, when you landed, you always had to have some form of visual reference, be it uh, a small tiny tree or anything, really, that would stay there when you came into land. Uh, but when you picked up the troops uh, in the middle of nowhere, they would have this procedure where they would pile all their kit and the men, bar one, into, this, into, into a big kind of melee of kit. Um, and then the one man would be volunteered to t- march so many paces forward uh, and he would have to stay there. As you came into land, you would put your right boot um, from the, from the, uh, by your right foot as you come into land right next to this chap. Because you knew that if you landed right next to him and you were into wind, then the door was right next to the rest of the boys. And they were just lobbing all the kit so they didn't have to travel anywhere. Uh, and because it was so cold, you, we had heaters on, on the seeking, um, but you never switched them on because the Marines didn't want to be, have all their kit defrosted and, and get wet because you're normally positioning them somewhere else. And so we were all bumpled up with big gloves and big boots um, to fly around uh, as well as they were, but we couldn't put the heaters on, so we just accepted we were cold. <laughs> so how did their training differ compared to the RAF? Um, well, it was pretty standard, really. You did the ground school first, um, and uh, that was about two weeks with exams uh, throughout, uh, and then... Uh, off onto the, uh, to, to the squadron or to the, the, the training squadron. Um, but it was all very similar. You were just, you were the novelty being um, the RAF chat there. Uh, and uh, so there was lots of banter uh, and you had to give as good as you got. <laughs> to, but uh, you, uh, it, was, it, was, it was very similar and equally as professional. The junglies, they, they would do, they had more roles to do. I mean, they flew the Royal Marines, so that's your usual trooping. Uh, we were also uh, embarked on ships uh, around the world, so you had the, the ship operations. Uh, and, uh, and, and we seemed to do more, in the early days, more night vision, low level, uh, be it in um, formation or just by yourself. Uh, but the formation was always interesting because with an MVG, you could, when you're close enough and you're doing a low level whizzing around, and you get too close, you can see, you can see the instruments, um, not read them, but you can see the glow of them. Yeah. Um, and it, it allowed night vision work was a great way of low flying because it was safe. It meant that you could see everything apart from wires. Uh, you could see you could see all the trees, the objects, uh, and so you could whiz around at 100 feet quite comfortably. Um, when you saw wires, you had to you had to plan how you're going to get over them. And it was a pylon. You headed towards the pylon, and then you you pulled up because the pylons are normally about 250 feet. You, you're at 100 feet. And then you would do a wing over effectively over the pylon and then carry on low level. But for night vision work, you always, um, one of you is always navigating and the other one is just flying mm-hmm. um, because it was, uh, it was a lot more to, to do. And the night vision hovering, you effectively had these two toilet tubes in front of your, look, you were looking through. So you had this one which would then coalesce into one hole, one kind of circle. circle. And you, to, to sit in the hover, you had to keep your head moving continually to actually get references to, to hover with. So it was, it was quite a challenge, but again, like anything, the more you do it, the, the more kind of natural it becomes. So what were some of the strengths and weaknesses of the sea thing? Um, I think the strengths were, um, especially in the jungly world, was the number of troops you could carry um, and uh, the range you could go. Uh, the landing on and off a ship in a, in a, it was designed for uh, landing on and off a ship. So the, the, the jungly seeking, the Mark IV, had fixed undercarriage. So uh, you could easily crash it onto a deck, as I often did, um, and, and it, it was fine. Um, and you had a good amount of power. Uh, so you could, you could carry a lot and you had a long range. 
It also had the, uh, the boat-shaped hull, which is, was a design uh, advantage of the Sea King. Uh, and if you ever see one, then you can see this, the, the boat shape just under the nose. Uh, and it allowed you, if need be, to land on water. If you had a single engine failure in the hover, and above a certain weight, you were committed to landing in the, in the water. Uh, and you used to practice uh, in the simulator. We didn't do it for real, but you had this way of getting away if you could. If the other engine was still working um, and uh, it wasn't too rough, you could do a thing called a single-engine water takeoff, a shooto, I think it was called. And we used to do it in the simulator. And you'd effectively, you'd over-rev um, the head and you'd start trundling along. Um, and the brief was, wait till the bow wave comes up onto the windscreen and then you pull in all the collective you've got and let the NR drop to this minimum level and you'd then whiz along as low as you could five feet ten feet above the water and then you did this bizarre thing whereas normally in your low level very low if you lower the collective you're going to go down but because we had to take the pitch off the blades you lowered the collective and the and the, the disc got faster and they give you more lift okay. indeed slightly it is a bit um uh, the wrong way around um but uh, it, and, and it did work uh, I never had to do it for, in anger, but you used to do it in the simulator. And so we all knew this technique of single-engine water takeoff. And that was one of the advantages of the Sea King. If you landed a Wessex in, in, the, in the water, you're going over. <laughs> so when you were flying in Europe, did you ever work with any, um, any other nations? Uh, we worked with the Dutch. Uh, we had an exercise uh, near Arnhem. Um, and uh, I think Dillon was the airfield we were at. And we operated with them. Uh, and but may, that was I think the only main time on the Norwegians obviously up in up in northern Norway uh, we operated with them uh, but uh, it was mainly mainly the Royal Marines or, or the uh, the British forces uh, depending on the exercises that we were doing. So do you have any stories that stick out in your mind from your flying over there? Uh, with the Navy um, my time really uh, I, I enjoyed uh, my time in Norway um, we used to obviously go up uh, and uh, operate up near, near the uh, place called Yurkin, a big gunnery range. Uh, and so I did occasionally, have, I did one time where you, I then lost, came into the hover uh, and lost the references. And the only way to get out of that is just to look at the artificial horizon and just pull uh, as much as you can, of not overtalk the, the aircraft. And you'd pop out the top of this, this snow cloud um, and then catch your breath and go around and do it better next time. Um, but la- landing on and off ship, um, no, not really. Uh, the odd time where uh, during the Gulf uh, War, uh, Desert Storm, the build-up to it, we, we were a bit short on fuel and we had to uh, land on one wheel on a frigate um, because the, the winch broke and so we couldn't get the hose on. So the only way to do it, luckily it was calm enough, we just put one wheel on and, and we refueled that way. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about um, what, like living on board? What was it like? Uh, you had a, a set routine. Uh, you were, uh, when you were on, effectively on duty, you would uh, go to morning, uh, uh, sh- the, the Navy called it shareholders, not briefing. Uh, morning briefing, I went to morning shareholders, uh, and you were told about the weather, uh, and then whatever tasking was, was required. You may, uh, if you always had secondary duties, uh, and with the Navy, uh, I was the squadron uh, nuclear, biological and chemical warfare officer, so there was bits and bobs to do with that, be it on a ship or when we went, uh, went ashore. Uh, and uh, so you, had, you always had some secondary duties, but I didn't have any ship-related secondary duties because I was only the, uh, the token crab 
No, so, so I didn't do any ship-related duties apart from just flying, flying the airplane or operating with a squadron as required. Uh, so you do day flying and night flying. Um, speaking to any Navy uh, helicopter pilot, night flying from a ship is always fascinating because you're in, in the middle of nowhere and it's black as anything uh, and you get airborne from the ship. And once you get going, you're flying into, into blackness. So generally, Navy helicopter pilots' instrument flying was very good because it had to be. Because you're sitting on this deck 30, 40 feet above the, the sea and you're lifting the hover and you wouldn't hang about because you obviously didn't want to hit the ship and the ship was going up and down. So you'd move, say, left. And at the same time, you'd put in a boot of rudder uh, and, and pitch the nose down and transition forward. But you kept, what, kept an eye, BDI, on your radar altimeter, your RADALT, because that and your speed was giving you life. You knew that as long as the RADALT was going up and you're accelerating, you're fine. But initially, you were doing an instrument flying circuit, effectively. Mm-hmm. And then you come round and back towards the ship. Uh, and so night flying over the sea was uh, low level, was certainly sharpened up your instrument flying skills. So did you enjoy your time on the Sea King at this point in time? Yes, I did. Yes, it was great. And um, I, it, was, it was lovely to do something different uh, and working with the Navy because we went to places that the Air Force didn't go. Uh, on and off ships, doing uh, dawn assaults with the, uh, the Royal Marines, a big formation of Sea Kings, uh, attacking a beach and dropping in the Marines uh, was, was a great adventure, big formations. And then once you put the Marines ashore, we would then go and live in the field with them. They would go forward and we'd have a forward operating base and we'd live in a tent with our engineers uh, and, and the, your aircraft would be nearby, it'd be dispersed. Uh, and then you'd have your tasking uh, every day and you'd go off and pick up the chats and move them around. But you were an independent unit uh, as a 846 squadron and 845. So it was, uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was different from the way the Royal Air Force operated because um, most of the SH boys were in Germany and they had a different way of doing it whereas the, the junglies would, were quite independent uh, and the, once they went ashore then they were, they were on their own um, and you were just one big unit uh, doing as required uh, by the Royal Marines. Yes, um, so I was given the secondary duty uh, on the squadron of being the Nuclear, Biological and Chemical Warfare Defence Officer, the NBCDU, uh, which was a, not the most exciting task in the respect that uh, at the end of every exercise there was always the NBCD phase, uh, and so you, then you pitched up and um, made the boys put on their gas masks or the respirators as we like to call them, uh, and uh, we operated for a day or so uh, in NBC conditions, which is a bit more challenging to, to work in all your kit that you had to wear. Uh, and I did a course at Porton Down, uh, the chemical establishment, uh, for two weeks with all these army fellows, uh, and uh, that was uh, quite eye-opening. So I came back to the squadron, and we. So at the end of every exercise, that was my my role, uh, and to make sure the squadron could operate in a chemical or nuclear conditions effectively. So then you got sent to the Gulf before it actually started. Could you tell us about this? Yes, uh, I uh, got married in. 21st of July, I must get that right, uh, 1990, uh, and we were on honeymoon in um, Thailand. And we came back from this lovely island uh, to Bangkok and put on the TV for the first time in a couple of weeks. And I saw on the news tanks rolling into Kuwait, into Kuwait City. And I thought, this doesn't look good. Literally got back from uh, a few days later back home and the answer machine at home was full of messages saying, Red, where are you? Red, are you get into the squadron? We're going on another holiday. And literally we had a week or so to get all our kit 
uh, and we embarked on RFA Fort Grange and headed out to the Gulf. Uh, and as the squadron uh, NBC officer, I had to get all this kit organised, extra bits and bobs, uh, to be sent, a lot of it was sent down to Gibraltar. And um, we picked it up there because we had to leave so quickly. Uh, so this was a flight of 846 Squadron. And we sailed out down to Jib through the Suez Canal uh, and around uh, the Yemen and into the Straits of Hormuz. And our role uh, was HDS, Helicopter Delivery System, effectively. And we supported uh, the frigates uh, who were operating at the top of the Gulf up near Kuwait. Uh, and uh, we were flying up and down long-range sorties uh, to them, as well as doing some low-level flying over the desert to get used to that, just in case things got more interesting. Um, so I was out there from end of... Uh, beginning of September until uh, December, uh, beginning of December, and then we were relieved by B flight of 846 Squadron. Uh, and we were flying around uh, in this lovely weather, hot, but very hot, and, and operating with your, ga- with your uh, AR-5, as it was called, which is your uh, f- pilot's uh, gas mask, effectively, uh, was uh, quite challenging, and, and you could only fly for so long when it was 30-odd degrees, uh, in a helicopter without any air conditioning. Uh, it, was, it was quite a challenge, I must say. But we were on the, when we on the way out, uh, we were fitted with these sand filters onto the Mark IV Seeking. The ones you see now uh, have these boxes on front of the engines. And these sand filters, effectively, when you get, got into the hover uh, in the desert, then these helped to uh, get rid of most of the sand uh, from going into the, the turbines of the engine. Uh, and when we had these fitted... Uh, we weren't briefed uh, at the time, or maybe I didn't read it, but we, we believe we weren't briefed, that when you were in heavy rain, to make sure you switched on the sand filters. But we were just flying over the sea, so we didn't have them switched on uh, to actually protect the engines from sand, and it effectively sucked out the sand before it went into the, or any sand before it went into the engines. We sat over the hover of this ship uh, in this heavy rain shower, uh, and then we transitioned forward, uh, and suddenly there was this bang, and one of the engines failed. And unbeknown to me, it's because water had built up in this box at the front and had gone down one of the engines, fortunately not both, but went down one of the engines and effectively put the fire out. Um, and so we were down to one engine. Uh, but the seeking was fine. We were, weren't too heavy. And we just carried on to a place called Ras al-Kama, which is north of Dubai, uh, and uh, did a running landing and landed there. And then the, the team, the engineers came out and uh, fired it up, and it was all fine. So basically, you just threw in a bucket of water down, down the <laughs> engine. But we got a night stop in a hotel, so uh, we just made the best of it. Yeah. But again, the Sea King uh, on one engine was, was fine. We trained for it, but uh, you, it certainly caught your attention when you had to hear a bang in a helicopter. Uh, but every helicopter pilot is trained that if you hear a bang or anything, the first thing you do is slightly lower the collective just in case uh, you, you lost both engines because you've got to get the, uh, the pitch off the blades quickly to allow you to keep your uh, head speed so you can then auto-rotate. So that was the first thing that instinctively happened. You'd lower the collector just a wee bit uh, and check in to see what, what actually did happen. But managed to get away with that, which is quite nice. So was the seeking the right aircraft for these first initial two weeks to do the job that you were intended to do? In, in, the, in the first part of the Gulf? Yeah. Yes, because of the long range. We could, uh, you could fill up a seeking and, and you could fly for six hours if you want to. But it was always a trade-off with how much kit you were carrying. So you had to work out your, um, how far you're going to the weight of the, 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 the kit you were, you were taking uh, to actually uh, to whether you could lift it off the deck. Uh, you could do a running la- takeoff, 
uh, as we did do on the way down to out to the Gulf, we had to pick up uh, this large generator uh, from, uh, I think it was from Cyprus. Uh, it was a big, big, rather heavy generator, and we were told this, its weight, um, which is actually wrong. We subsequently found out, and we filled up enough fuel to head out towards the ship. Um, and we lifted in, we tried to lift in the hover, but we couldn't get into the hover without over-torquing it. So we thought, well, we'll just tax it out to the runway, and so we did a running takeoff uh, and managed to get airborne and headed out towards the ship. Uh, but meanwhile, the ship was sailing away from us uh, down towards Port Said. And it, we, when you leave a ship uh, on a helicopter and go off somewhere else, the ship tells you its speed and its track. And so you can then plot where it will be at a, a certain time. And so when you go away from the ship and do whatever you're doing, come back, you, it'll intercept where the ship is. And so we headed towards where we thought the ship was, and it wasn't there. In the middle of the Mediterranean, we think, ah, okay. So we looked at the fuel, we thought, well, we can keep going for a while. We called up on guard and on 1215, which is the other emergency frequency, and the ship's frequency, and, and no one answered. And eventually we were getting to this stage where we need to divert um, back to Cyprus, or, uh, and then the ship, the ship, we would then lose the ship, because it was sailing at full speed to get out to the Gulf. Um, so we thought, well, we'll try this plan B, which was use our HF. And we used to use Portishead Radio, which is an HF bunch down to Bristol. And uh, you could do phone patches. You could call them up on HF, and they would, you could tell them who to phone. And you could then speak to people um, on the HF. And it was a, an, another way of doing it, but it wasn't, wasn't secure. But we thought we, we concluded that the only way we were going to find the ship was to do this. So we phoned up on HF, Portishead Radio in Bristol, on the Mediterranean, and we said, can you phone the Admiralty? We need to know where Fort Grange is in the next less than half an hour, otherwise we will need to go back uh, and they'll never get this generator thing. And they did. They gave us the ship's position and we then headed off towards it and we found it. So, well done, Portishead Radio. <laughs> so then you went back, but then mm-hmm. you were called up to rejoin the war, as it were. Could you tell us about this? Yes, we uh, went back in early December, uh, and they reformed a new squadron, 848 Squadron, uh, with various pilots from the training squadrons uh, and, uh, and other pilots from within the Navy. Uh, and we were another jungly squadron, effectively. And we flew out in early, about the 2nd or 3rd of January. Uh, 1991 and the, the aircraft had already been sent out uh, by ship uh, and we met the aircraft in Jabail port where we, we then uh, created this new squadron 848 and so it was a, it was a good squadron because a lot of chaps I knew from 846 who'd gone off to other squadrons who were drafted back in um, and uh, very experienced uh, training uh, chaps as well uh, and all the sea kings were all painted up in uh, pink desert colours so, and then we had two brand new ones, uh, and I picked one up um, from the port. And it was like getting in, when you, if ever you're lucky enough to buy a new car, it had that new car smell. Oh, really? Yeah, it, it was clean, and there was no dust or shrapnel anywhere. And you jumped into this, and you thought, lovely. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't get that one to, to use, but we did have our own aircraft, effectively, for the duration of the, of the Gulf War. Um, and... Uh, we were uh, initially at Jabail Port for a bit, uh, and then when the air war started on January the 17th, uh, we then uh, headed into, into the desert, about 300 miles or so, uh, up towards the uh, Saudi um, and Iraq border, uh, near uh, King Khalid Military City. And so we were near there with 845 Squadron, uh, and the Puma Squadron boys were out there too. Um, and uh, our role was to support the 1st UK Armoured Division, 
uh, and uh, so moving men and kit around for them. And we also had a second role of casualty evacuation uh, and we had an RAF medic corporal uh, with us uh, and our chap uh, was known as Maggot, but that's, I won't take, go into that detail again, but uh, he loved the chap and wherever we flew there was now four of us in, in the seeking. Um, and uh, we had our, all our gas mask kit, uh, respirator, uh, and our weapons, personal weapons, uh, which is SA-80 and the 9mm uh, handgun. Uh, and we also had a, um, a 66 rocket launcher, a grenade launcher, which was a marvellous thing. It was basically the thing you unfolded, and then you fired off this grenade and then ran away bravely. Well, that was our plan anyway. Each person had No, no, we had one of the... <laughs> that'd be quite nice. Yeah. No, we had one of the, one of the seeking. Um, and... Uh, so we were in the desert uh, as, as, a, as a unit and the, the junglies, as I said earlier, we were trained to do this. We were used to operating independently. Um, and uh, when we landed, uh, we had to dig our, uh, our trenches so that we could protect ourselves from any uh, incoming missiles or whatever. Um, and that took a few days because it was almost solid rock. Uh, and um, we were in a tent of uh, either eight or ten of us. So the four, um, myself and uh, Roger Ramjet, my co-pilot, uh, and uh, crewman and uh, um, our maggot, our, our medical fellow, and some of the engineers. So we all lived together. Uh, and our, again, we just flew around the desert uh, supporting the, the, uh, the army um, and picking up any injured people as required. Uh, and again, we, we met using the MVG uh, and our low-level flying uh, to, to good use. We managed to work out that flying around at 50 feet uh, with the radar altimeter hold in, which is normally used for flying over the sea with the radar altimeter hold, uh, we could fly, get down to 100 feet and then wind it down to 50 feet and so you could whiz around in, in kind of formation uh, with your night vision goggles on over the desert because it was so flat where we were, uh, it was fine. Occasionally, you would you'd set your bug, your warning bug, to 10% below your height that you're clear to fly low level. So you set it to about 40 feet or 35 or whatever and occasionally you'd get the kind of beep if you're, it had gone, you'd gone too low, even though it was holding the height you were going over a, a sand dune or something. Um, but in the desert, there wasn't much ambient light for the, the night vision goggles. So it was, uh, they, they worked quite hard. Um, but if you're information, then you just watched what the other chap was doing in front of you. So how many sea things were sent out and how many crews? Ooh, um, well, there was two squadrons. There was eight for five and eight for six. Uh, and I'm be guessing now, I think we probably had about eight or so aircraft each, if not more. Um, and uh, each helicopter had uh, two pilots, uh, and a crewman, um, and then there were some spare who were working in the ops side in the in the uh, the box bodies we call it, um, organising the the tasking. Uh, so though and the squadron executives, so the boss and the senior pilot. So there was um, yeah a good number of us, and we all uh, said so we were effectively in the desert for intense for uh, almost two and a half months. Um, but you were kind of used to it because that that's how we operated. So the training did work because that's how we operated in the field. And so to do it for real um, was uh, we we're, were kind of comfortable with it, even though the environment was a bit antisocial. Uh, you, you, we, it was kind of slightly natural to us in a way. So we're, we were used to that sort of antisocial <laughs> way to live. <laughs> how do their sea kings actually cope in this environment? Very well. Um, we, we had the sand filters. Uh, which as long as you weren't flying in rain and switched them on, they were fine. Um, and they would, they would clear the sand away from the, the jet en- the engines, uh, and so you could sit in the hover quite comfortably and not damage uh, the, the, the gnome engines. Uh, 
and, uh, but, and, and for low level, uh, as I said, using the radar altimeter hold um, worked very well for us. Um, and the amount of people that we could f carry and, and fly around uh, for the tasking, uh, it, it, was, it was good. Um, and we had uh, more than enough um, people out there to, 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 to do, the, do the job. Um, and we were never short, and we, 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 yeah, we flew a lot. But it was, it was just tasking as, as required uh, until the actual ground war started. Then we just went into Iraq, um, and it, it was such a short uh, ground war, fortunately, that by the time we were going into Iraq, we were picking up injured Iraqis or British soldiers um, and lots of POWs and taking them back to uh, the POW camps, which had been set up in Saudi. So did the Sea King's range diminish in this, this new environment? Uh, no, not really. We still had the range. Uh, we just had a wee bit more kit on board, but it doesn't really reduce the, how far we could go. Uh, we, we rarely did long six-hour trips. Um, that was really from kind of ship to ship sort of thing. But once in, in the desert, you're doing short hops uh, and uh, you, you didn't use that side of the helicopter uh, as much. But it was just used as a, purely as a trooping uh, and a Kazivak helicopter. We, we set up the back so um, we could have some stretchers. We had a stretcher fit. Uh, um, uh, which was part of, of, the, of the seeking fit, which you could put in, which we had. So we could put some, uh, I think I picked up three uh, injured Iraqi soldiers uh, and they were on stretch as we took them back to a hospital. Um, but, uh, so we had that fit as well. So it, it, was, it was fairly a dynamic um, bit of kit, really, that you could do all sorts of things with it. Um, and so it's quite flexible. Is there any incidents or stories that stick out into your mind? From the Gulf, um, well, from a flying point of view, uh, I, we had this um, fun of uh, going off low level, 50 feet as I said, um, and you would set your height warner to, if you went too low, um, and we transitioned off uh, in a formation and I'd forgotten to set my warning system. And we were turning low level, uh, and I think we must have been about 50 odd feet or so, and I, for whatever reason, I looked in to my left uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, to my right, rather, and I was just distracted by something. And I glanced down at the red alt, and there it was going through 30 feet at quite a rate. And I just gave it a, shove, a pull of the collective, and up she went. Um, and so, fortunately, it had enough power to, to protect me from that one. But that was just classic human error, which we all do. Yeah. Um, we also had uh, a couple of uh, Scud missile. Um, explosions going on above our heads. We had uh, we were quite near King Khalid Military City, so there was a target nearby, and quite a lot of scuds would be firing over our heads down to um, other parts of Saudi. And so you get an air raid warning, and so you put on your gas mask and jump into your slit trench, which you'd dug, um, and you'd you'd watch these things going over or see the the, con the trails. But then one day it was late, late in the evening, um, and I was wandering back to the tent. And I, there was this sudden explosion, uh, and I looked up, glanced to my right, I ducked, and it was like a massive firework had gone off. Uh, and immediately put on my gas mask and ran into the tent, and everyone came scuttling out and jumped into their foxholes. Uh, and if, what had actually happened was there were some Scud missiles coming in, and our Patriot battery missile, uh, the Americans, were not too far away. And they'd fired off two uh, Patriot missiles, and one, or three rather, and one had gone low level and come straight towards our camp, uh, and they self-detonated uh, just above our camp. Um, it didn't damage any of our aircraft, but there's a few holes in some of the tents. It damaged, we believe, I think some of the Pumas were hit, uh, but uh, no one was injured. Uh, but that certainly it was uh, quite a firework display to watch, because we then sat there watching more of these, more of these going up. And luckily, and, and you see them going up, and, and, and it would kind of 
explosion as they took out the scud. So they were accurate most of the time. <laughs> so how long did you spend over in the Gulf? And do you feel like this, yourself and the Sea King did a good job? Uh, I was so I was there really from August and uh, in the when it initially went out, apart from the wee gap in Christmas uh, until end of March. Uh, so yes, uh, yes, we did. It, the the Sea King performed very well. Uh, not only were we eight for eight in the desert and eight for five, but eight for six squadron. They were on. Uh, they were embarked on a ship. I think it was HMS Ocean. Uh, may, may be wrong on that one. But they were embarked on a ship for uh, for for a, a similar sort of role, but uh, to do assaults from the sea if need be. Uh, so there was there's actually three jungly squadrons uh, out in the desert or in the in the desert environment. Uh, so yes, the seeking seeking did well. We, there were no technical issues um, that, that stopped us operating. Uh, just the usual challenge of working in, in a sandy and dusty environment for the engineers. Um, and it wasn't always sunny and warm. Uh, in January, it, it was getting down to zero and below uh, in, the, in the tents. And we had frost in the mornings. And the poor engineers were out there in all conditions. And we had sandstorms coming in. Uh, so it, it was hard for, for, for them. And... Uh, easy for us as we just stooged about in the, in the aircraft but we were out cleaning the aircraft with them um, and hoovering up as much of the sanding and, uh, and helping where we could mm-hmm. uh, but the, the engineers certainly had a, had a hard time of it I must say. <laughs> So after this, you went back to the RAF. Could yep. you tell us about this? Yes, I w- went back to uh, RAF Col- uh, Royal Naval Air Station Coldrose. <clears throat> and uh, interestingly, I had to do the full seeking course because the, Nav- the Air Force weren't, were a bit confused about somebody coming in who had a 1,000 plus hours <laughs> on seekings. But I had to do the full ground school. I know, exactly. Uh, and then did the, the, the search and rescue SARTU course, uh, which was right and proper because I... I only had limited search and rescue experience, so I did that course down at Coldrose uh, on the Mark III Seeking, which was effectively to fly exactly the same as a Mark IV, but it had the radome just behind the head, uh, and so you had the radar uh, in the cabin, uh, so you had a radar operator who then became the winch man, and you had the crewman, uh, the winchman who went down to the winch. So there's four of you. Um, and the actual kit you had on board was pretty much the same, same VOR, ILS, uh, and the, the TANS, uh, the tactical na- air navigation system, uh, and, uh, but it was obviously heavier aircraft because of the radar. Uh, and that, so we did a quick course there, and then I went to RAF uh, Manston in Kent um, and uh, flew there. Uh, and your, the role was, a primary role actually, was to pick up fast jet pilots were dejected uh, as a primary rule. So in theory, if you're going off to save um, somebody in a yacht or whatever and you heard a, the, the personal locator beacon uh, of a fast jet guy who's gone in, you had to kind of sneak to, terribly sorry, and head off and go and pick up the fast jet guy. That was the theory. It, we, you never got to that. And I never picked up any fast jet chaps because it was such a rare thing. So we were really uh, aid to the civil powers uh, and, and uh, looking after those in our 200-mile circle uh, around Manston. Uh, and the routine was very civilised. Um, compared to SH support helicopter flying, um, it was known as the pipe and slipper world of, of <laughs> search and rescue. That's a great term. Which, which, was, which was quite nice, actually. Um, and you effectively went into the squadron at, uh, we used at half nine uh, and got a briefing from the other crew what they'd done and how the aircraft was, took over the aircraft and went out and had a look around it and got all the switches in the way you liked them in the correct position, obviously. Uh, and um, you were then on uh, standby to get airborne within 15 minutes during the day and 45 minutes at night. 
So you lived in the squadron for 24 hours. So we used to do two hours day flying and two hours night flying. Uh, and the day flying would be uh, going off and hovering over the cliffs, doing cliff winching uh, exercises or uh, going out in the channel. You'd fly out and you'd call up on Channel 16, which is the, uh, the marine, the maritime uh, emergency channel everyone listened out to. And you'd come up to a ship, you'd get into the hover, and you'd call them up and say, maybe winch down our winchman for training, uh, whatever country it was. And 99% of the time, they say, yes, you're marvellous. And so you'd find a spot on the ship um, and winch them down onto the bridge or the deck or whatever was convenient. Um, and the crewmen uh, would scuttle inside to the bridge and go and have a chat with the captain. Uh, and you'd fly around the ship and then we'd pick them up. Uh, or you'd put in a beacon um, on a wooden cross, which would float in the water with a buoy on it. Uh, and that would be a training beacon on 243, uh, 243.5, so that it wasn't the emergency frequency, just a wee bit off. Uh, and you'd then dis- go off and do your, win- your cliff winching or boat winching, and then you'd home in to, to the beacon. Um, and you had a set procedure, which the seeking uh, had to be not designed for, but which we used, where you'd come along at 200 feet with a radar altimeter hold in, fly home in on the beacon, fly out straight over the beacon, so that's where the the fast jet guy would be sitting in his dinghy. And then you'd do a teardrop manoeuvre, come round, and then you'd press the thing called the transition down button, which would take you from 200 feet down to the 50-foot Doppler hover. Uh, and the seeking would sit uh, in any sea condition, effectively, unless it was very antisocial, uh, it would sit in, in that Doppler hover uh, as long as it wanted, mm-hmm. until you ran out of fuel. Um, and because the, the distance where the uh, the door was in the seeking and where I was sitting in the hover I couldn't actually see the dinghy so you'd come to the hover and then on, when a chap was in his personal locator um, this, the small dinghy because uh, I couldn't see them I couldn't hover so I would, give it, I would give the hovering of the airplane to the crewman on this thing called the auxiliary hover trim and this would give the crewman eight knots of movement of the helicopter left, right, forward or back mm-hmm. so he would have to multitask, and the winchman uh, would be going down on the wire, and the radar operator would be the, uh, the winch operator, and he'd be moving the winch up and down and flying the aeroplane to keep it over, over, the, over the dinghy. And it was, it was very difficult, because we used to occasionally have a go, uh, and I was rubbish at it. <laughs> but it was... Uh, it, the, to the, the winchman, uh, the, the winch operator, had, uh, had a, very important, a very important role in that respect um, when it picked up down crew. Because we couldn't see, uh, and it's the same on smaller ships. Sometimes you had to give the hover to the, uh, or, or we yachts, uh, you, you had to give the hover to the uh, the winchman, uh, or you'd be hovering over a cliff, and then you just or near the side of the cliff, and again the winch, um, the winchman would be giving you the patter and telling you how far away your blades were from the cliff, uh, and there were different techniques of m- moving the winchman either over the cliff or from the bottom up or from the top down, and to kind of cliff walk his way down or cliff walk the way up. Uh, depending on, and, on, on the environment, and you were always trying to keep the winchman as safe as possible. Because every time you came to a situation, uh, you would sit in the hover and discuss the plan. I would tell them how much power I had, right, we're single engine hover, that's fine, if we were light or not. Um, and then effectively the winch man uh, and the winch operator would come up with how they were going to solve the problem, how they were going to land on the, ch- on the ship or the, on the yacht, uh, and, and you would say, well, that's fine, that works, I can sit in this heading or that heading, and we've got an hour plus fuel, off you go. And, and, and you would do it as a complete team. So it's not simply just get on that 
go down. No, no, indeed not. No, no, it was um, because, you know, every big ships were fine, but it was a small yacht. Uh, Then you had the mast and all the wires that attached the mast flailing all over the place and and they're rolling around. And so it it was quite tricky. And and often on a yacht, you couldn't actually see parts of the yacht to hover on. uh, And you couldn't use auxiliary hover trim just because of the sea state or... The, the Doppler would lock onto the um, the radar would uh, would lock on the Doppler hover would lock onto the uh, actual boat, so you had to do it manually. Um, and because you couldn't see what you're hovering on, you had to hover by attitude. Mm-hmm. So you look at the horizon. The, the crewman would give you forward one, forward right, and steady, and you that's a steady hover. You then look at the attitude, and you'd use that your horizon outside or the, the actual artificial horizon on the instrument as your hover reference with a combined of looking out at the sea, and you get little bits of spume um, on, from waves, which sit in the same, pl- same place for 5, 10, 20 seconds. So you can use that as your hover reference. So you have this kind of combination uh, to, to, to actually maintain a steady hover. But the, the crewman would... You're allowed to kind of manoeuvre around um, until the actual pickup, and then he would try and get you as overhead as possible. Or you'd be slightly further away, so when he winched in... The, the, casualty, the winchman and the casualty would be pulled away uh, from the heaving deck. So different ways of doing it, yeah. um, but you were, you were a, a, com- a complete team. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I was the captain of the aircraft, but it was, I was in charge of uh, their lives. Or they were, and and if, they, if they said, no, we can't do this, then that was it. There was no... No. Issue, yeah, no, no, it, it, you, you're correct, because uh, you're not going to boot the rescuers yeah, in a dangerous position. Um, you had to think of the, of the team, but that was, I never had that, fortunately. Yeah. So how many rescues did you get under your belt, and did you enjoy this tour? A uh, number of rescues. <laughs> I should have counted in my logbook. Um, a, at least 100 or so. Wow. Um, okay. Because I, I, uh, I did two tours, so I did uh, four plus years, um, and uh, also some time down in the Falklands. Uh, we used to go down there and, and support the army and do search and rescue down there. Uh, they... Rescue flights were f- varied from people in lilos being <laughs> blown out to sea to heart attacks on ships um, to this uh, one chap. We were called out to Beachy Head uh, from Manston and the call was, uh, somebody's gone over Beachy Head on a mountain bike. I thought, what? what? And he thought, well, he's history. Uh, and we got there uh, and he was just on the edge of Beachy Head, of Sheer Cliff, and he'd gone over and he was halfway down. And, he, oh. and we picked him up, you know, he'd broken his leg. So he was, he was okay. Or two other ones where um, this canoeist uh, was out uh, and got lost in the River Medway and was uh, trying to get back ashore. And they found the canoe, but they didn't find uh, the canoeist. And so we went searching with the MVG and all that sort of stuff. We did it for about a couple of hours. Um, and they said, we found the canoe, um, but we haven't found him and then we got a call from uh, the, the, the search and rescue people saying, uh, we've actually found him, um, you can stand down. So we're not needed, no, no, it's fine. So we headed back to Manston and we called up and said, well, where was he? And um, he said, well, he was actually in hospital. I said, oh, that was lucky. It was, you know, he managed to get in hospital, that's good. And he said, well, no, he, he got himself aground and walked away from his canoe. And as he was walking back to his house, he was knocked over by a car. So... <laughs> So he, uh, he, but he was fine. But he was just uh, see, he wasn't hospital, but not exactly as we envisaged. Yes, exactly. So other ones were people stuck in cliffs, um, and we did uh, put down the, uh, once put down the uh, the uh, EOD team, the explosive team, onto a trawler because they'd 
picked up a mine uh, from the Second World War, one of these round jobbers with the, the spikes sticking out. And we came to the hover and we could see this mine in the net bashing against the side of this trawler. We thought, let's do this quickly. So we, <laughs> we dropped the EOD team down and, uh, and left them to do their, do their work and ran away bravely. I think it's all the best way. Yeah. <laughs> well, John, it sounds like you've had a really great career. So what, what aircraft did you enjoy flying the most? Flying the most, um, I th- probably think the Wessex, uh, just because it was your first tour uh, and uh, I'd worked so hard and waited so long to get to an operational tour and the whole thing was, was great fun. Uh, I did enjoy the seeking for the role, the different roles that I did with it, doing SH flying uh, and search and rescue. Uh, and I don't think you can use a helicopter for anything better than saving lives. So uh, to that, that was a, an honour to do that and I did I enjoyed that. Um, from there, yeah, from a helicopter point of view, uh, that was it. From a fixed wing point of view, uh, I did fly the Chipmunk flying cadets uh, to build up more fixed wing hours before I came out uh, of the Royal Air Force, and um, that was a joy. It was a, a lovely aircraft to fly, I must say. And um, taking wee cadets up, and I think they're eleven or twelve, the youngest, and they'd climb into the back of the of the of the Chipmunk with the engine running, uh, and you'd look over your shoulder, and all you'd see this with the top of the helmet. They were so small. <laughs> You couldn't see them, and and you and you'd say, um, "Have you flown before?" "Yes, sir, I have." And they say, "What, what would you like to do today?" Uh, "Aerobatics, please, sir." And <laughs> that's all they wanted to do. Aerobatics, yeah, it's great. So, John, do you have any hobbies? Uh, yes, I I, I play golf uh, poorly, um, and uh, I do quite a bit of road cycling. Uh, and uh, gardening, and I'm involved with my local church, so I do bits and bobs with that. Uh, that keeps me busy. And um, usual family stuff, although they're a bit older now, I must say. So is there an aircraft or helicopter you wish you could have flown? Oh, good question. Um, I think uh, probably the Huey, the classic Huey from the Vietnam War. Um, it just uh, it sounds great, uh, and it looks a, a classic helicopter fly. Um, and I have, I've read a number of times that book, Chicken Hawk. And if you've never read it, I'd highly recommend it. It's a great book. Uh, and uh, what that chap did flying that, um, the, 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 the Huey around in Vietnam was, was, was quite impressive, I must say. I'd love to have a go in a Huey, I must say. So do you fly currently? Uh, yes, I work for EasyJet, uh, flying the Airbus um, 319-320 series aircraft, uh, based up in Edinburgh. Uh, and I've been with them for the last 10 or so years. Uh, and before that, I worked for a BA subsidiary called BA Connect, um, and we were originally Manx Airlines, but then bought over by British Airways. Uh, and uh, I flew the Jetstream 41 and the ATP and the Ember 145. So, uh, yes, yeah, so still flying. Uh, it's a bit more civilised way to aviate rather than whizzing around low level, and I can now cruise around over the Alps, drinking a cup of coffee, watching the world go by. Lovely. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? No. <laughs> No, I don't. I do. I, I'm lucky. I still enjoy it, uh, and uh, I've been very fortunate to have uh, done what I've done with the military, uh, and it's been great fun. And so, if anybody does ask me, then I will probably bore them to tears. So I have to stop myself. <laughs> well, John, thanks very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.